Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Kieran, how's things? I'm very good. How are you, Dave? I'm pretty good. It's hot in Brisbane. Is it is it killer in Melbourne? Oh, we've had a couple of cool days for a change. I think we had our first hot day for the year on the day that we decided to have a demo on Sunday. But uh, other than that, it's been nice and chill. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned it because that's what I want to talk about. So this demo happened on Monday, and let let me get Sunday. my oh, yeah. Sunday. Let me get my understanding of this right. So the far right. Um, 
involving some fascist organisations, and we can talk about who they are, had organised a demonstration to celebrate the election of Trump. Is that correct? Uh, it's what we told people publicly. Um, it's a little bit interesting. So what appears to have happened is that there are some sort of people engaging with the alt-right scene online uh, who might be based in Melbourne. Uh, and it appears that they largely, as a joke, put an event up uh, in t uh, from a Facebook page entitled Supreme Leader Donald Trump, uh, announcing that they were going to hold a public celebration of uh, the election of Donald Trump. And uh, I get the impression they were joking because um, we had people connected with that page message us and say uh, that this had gotten out of hand and that they were just having a laugh until they were approached uh, by the True Blue crew and the United Patriots Front and others to endorse, provide security at and speak at their rally. Uh, so it was a, an interesting process there. So, so this was kind of like an alt-right um, meta troll uh, I, I'm, I wonder to what extent they were joking. Um, so, but it, it does appear to have started as a joke from their from their end that they were uh, putting it up, uh, perhaps satirically, perhaps whatever. Um, and then it appears that uh, Melbourne's other fascist groups have jumped on it because it's uh, the election of Donald Trump is something that every far right groups attempted to latch onto and capitalise from. Uh, and I was sort of interested because uh, this event that was meant to happen on Sunday had uh, 700, 800 people RSVP online uh, and sort of 1,100 people saying that uh, they were interested in it. And it was, a, it was a real interesting thing. Like, would Melbourne's sort of keyboard-worrying alt-right uh, turn up and go to a demonstration? Uh, and then what would the connection be between them and the fascist groups? Uh, and what appears to have happened in practice is that uh, the keyboard warrior appear to have largely stayed home. There was probably no more than uh, a dozen or so based on our spotters reports mm -hmm. uh, and that turned out. And the rest were all known faces from the fascist milieu. So, Kieran, you mentioned two groups that uh, participated at some level in this alt-right rally. One is the UPF and the other is the True Blue Crew. Uh, could you just explain to the listener what these organisations are? Yeah, certainly. So the UPF or the United Patriots Front uh, originated from a split uh, from Reclaim Australia in Melbourne. Uh, so when Sherman Burgess had a bit of a falling out midway through 2015 with um, other organisers in Reclaim Australia, he announced he was forming this United Patriots Front, which he later fell out with and split from again. So, you know, standard far right thing. But the interesting thing about the United Patriots Front is that a number of the personnel that it seems to have brought together um, have their background in Melbourne's neo-Nazi set. So uh, they come from groups like Nationalist Alternative and that. Uh, and their current uh, chairman slash Fuhrer is one Blair Cottrell, mm -hmm. uh, who, who, who quite consciously and quite obviously models himself on Hitler, like down to the hand movements at rallies, the uh, not-quite-concealed quotes from Mein Kampf, that mm -hmm. sort of uh, so this is a group that's grown out of, uh, I think it's fair to say, has grown out of the neo-Nazi sub, uh, subculture, uh, and they're consciously part of a project to orient towards anti-Islam nationalism. Wow, but the, the, aesthetically, they don't appear like um, neo-Nazis, do they? They, they don't, they've, and they've they kind consciously... Of broken with that. Mm. Uh, and that's a very deliberate part of their strategy, is to 
is to not appear to be neo-Nazis. Again, like nationalist alternative, the group they grew out of was sort of experimenting with uh, almost an anarchist chic, uh, mm. the, the semi-black bloc get-up. Uh, it's you know part of the ongoing experimentation on the far right with what is the aesthetic, what is the politic, what is the you know branding that will allow us to break out of this far right ghetto and reach a wider audience. And and uh, what are, and what about the True Blue Blue Crew? The True Blue Crew are interesting. They're a very different group in some ways. Now again, they grow out of the same phenomena. They grow out of a number of people who are you know went to these Reclaim Australia rallies last year. Um, and they seem to have responded by creating uh, a street fighting gang or um, an organization that they quite explicitly put it in terms of defending the patriot movement against the evil left. Um, their personnel uh, have history, uh, even PDLA, uh, another, um, another far-right group that's in turn modelled uh, a split from the Australian Defence League, which is modelled on the English Defence League. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they're based in the northwestern suburbs. They're quite they're quite consciously centred on Melton. They also have um, a reasonably active branch in Bendigo, um, and their organisational form has, I think, more in common with almost a bikey gang. I think that's what they look to for their organisational politics. Um, I'm not aware of any actual like links between that particular group and the neo-nazi subsect i think their links go back um through the edls and potatoes in australia mm. uh, like pdla but they're also interesting in that they're based quite geographically in a, a depressed northwestern suburb with a high rate of unemployment um and the uh, profile of their members appears to be like fairly obviously white uh, mm. but also about 50 percent at least unemployed and others who I've spoken to are uh, recruited by the president of that organization uh, through their place of work, which tend to be trades um, or construction related. Wow, that's really fascinating. And is there much, what's the relationship between the UPF and the TBC? Are they, do they have a friendly relationship or do they see themselves as competing or radically different organizations? I think all of these groups sort of cooperate, compete, cooperate ignore each other depending on whatever the priorities are today and who's had a falling out with who it's a very fractious milieu um and the way you know the extent to which they cooperate uh depends on you know when things are going well they appear to cooperate more when they're facing more opposition they seem to fall out more uh so they recently cooperated together the upf and tbc cooperated obviously on this alt-right rally in melbourne but they also cooperated with of all groups party for freedom uh, from Sydney, who are, like, even as far as neo-Nazis are concerned, total cranks. Um, and they cooperated on a rally in Eltham, which, thankfully, was a bit of a flop. Uh, but in the past, um, there's been some tensions between some of these groups over, you know, the tactics and strategy of, are we, you know, are we focusing on Islam? Are we a true blue Australian group? Or... You know, do we appear uh, too fascist, like, I don't know, soldiers of Odin or something mm. like that? Uh, but there also appears to be some personality difference uh, that sometimes rears up between these different groups. Uh, in the past, we've seen Melbourne's uh, soldiers of Odin imitators uh, clash with uh, members of the True Blue crew. And as best we can work out, that appeared to be entirely personality-based around uh, who was stealing money from who. Okay, yeah, keep on going. So... You, yeah, you're saying so, that there's like so, there's internal divisions within the fascist organisations themselves. Yeah, so there's sort of um, 
there's several factors going on. So they have tense relationships with each other. Sometimes they cooperate, sometimes they conflict. And it seems to depend in part on personality, but also in part on different understandings of what a fascist movement should be and what its aim should be and uh, how it should be conducted and so on. Um, So you get at one sort of extreme the people who think that the point of fascism is to build a movement against the Jews um, and that whole uh, everything that goes with that uh, and that the focus on Islam and Muslims is about at most building uh, a movement, a right-wing movement on what we can and then we can redirect that back towards, uh, you know, against the Jewish enemy. And that's what Blair Cottrell has told his lieutenants privately. Thank you, Indy Norris, for leaking all of that. Um, but then at the other end, you get people who are like, what is with this Jew thing? Like, what What are we? No, no, we just love Australia, hate Muslims, think we should bash them. Um, so that's very crudely put. So you get this difference between, and then at, at like at one extreme, people who are like, what's with the focus on Islam? Let's hate Jews. They're, yeah. they're totally marginal Nazis. You get Nazis like Blair and the UPF who are, yeah, we need to drop the swastikas, we need to drop the sea hailing, and we need to engage with the mainstream Islamophobia uh, and build a nationalist project around that. And then you get people whose understanding is um, we need, they're primarily focused towards de- uh, developing an anti-Islam movement. Um, and there's sort of, a mix of tensions. People shift between these two spaces. Uh, so Neil Erickson, for instance, uh, 2014, he was hanging with like Nazis. He was doing the Sieg Hale thing down uh, at Blood and Honor gigs. He was convicted of harassing a rabbi. Uh, and it was all about, he was involved in nationalist alternative, a, a very neo-Nazi formation. Do they still exist? Went, Hard to say. I don't think so. Uh, the people involved in it are still around, uh, and some of the people who were involved in it are definitely still organising, but their members have ended up in a bunch of different places. So Neil went through Reclaim Australia and, and an association with Sherman Burgess through the UPF, um, and then later, by, by last year, he was putting Israeli flags on his Facebook profile, uh, stand with Israel against the Muslim menace, Uh, And by sort of late last year, by this year, he was putting out stuff about how I used to be a Nazi. The problem with with the movement is the Nazis. Uh, We'll only ever build a successful movement if we drop uh, all the stuff about Jews and Nazism. And we have to cut those elements out and have to build an anti-Islam patriot movement instead. Perhaps those terminologies are are interesting. You know, the the words they choose to use, do they use the the term patriot movement? movement or nationalist movement and what they mean by that um so yeah it's uh it's an interesting interplay so we saw you know at the first reclaim australia rally so there were people going swastikas tattooed on their heads and shirts with uh various nazi germany related things mm. uh and that's part i think of the tensions that pulled reclaim australia apart was this going to be a broad right-wing front that drew in everyone or did they have to expunge the Nazi elements uh, in, in order to keep functioning? And then when they tried to do that, when they had the, 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 the fights as a, as a result, then the, the whole thing fractures. 
so yeah, it's an interesting process. So one of the things I'm, I'm really... And also... Oh. No, keep on going. One of the other interesting things is that these different elements with these different points of view come from very different backgrounds. Uh, so you've got the people coming from sort of the Q society background, as I call them. They're middle class. They've got money. They hate Islam. They're the people who would bring uh, Gert Wilders out to speak a couple of years ago, and they tend to back the Australian Liberty Alliance. Uh, the True Blue Crew, interesting group, um, different backgrounds, uh, have been described perhaps as working class or the Marxists might call them more lumpen proletariat, but I've noticed that a number of their members would be uh, essentially middle-class tradies, mm. self-employed, so on. Uh, but they take the very patriot movement, no space for the sort of Nazi element type thing so much. Um, but there's all sorts of interesting overlaps and crisscrossing and moving uh, depending on who's formed alliances with who and who's running with what brand today. So I guess that there's two things I'm quite interested in. I, from what you said originally about the history of the where this rally actually came from, it's kind of thrown me because they're kind of mm. debates about Trump, I think, in, and they're like Trump's – there's a multiple series of debates on the left, right? Like, first of all, is Trump mm. a fascist or is, not a, is Trump not a fascist? And then depending on people's – determinations of that question then they say is that, that trump has an effect that empowers and emboldens fascist and reactionary mm. movements so i guess i was mm. kind of interested in this thinking well is this an example that even in melbourne that there's a kind of emboldening trump effect being played out here but from what you're saying it doesn't really seem to be the case i think there could be i'm not sure um the far-right groupings have definitely uh, taken confidence from the election of Trump. They see it as a positive sign. They see the election results around Hanson as a positive sign. The United Patriots Front were gleefully boasting uh, that their page reach on Facebook had reached 3 million on the back of the posts that they were making about Trump, that they had 900 new likes a day. But they weren't able to convert this into either new money through the sale of merchandise and the raising of donations or into new boots on the ground in terms of this Trump rally that they mm. held. Now, is that because there is no basis of support for something like Trumpism in Australia and they're not going to come out? Or is that a result? I, I, think, it, I think part of the element, I don't want to totally big myself up or anything, um, but I think some of the work that we've done has actually made it harder for the likes of the United Patriots crew, uh, Front and the True Blue crew to latch on to whatever interest might be generated by Trumpism. Like a so yeah, let's, 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 talk, let's, talk, let's talk about this. There's been as well mm. as the, you know, from afar, Melbourne's really interesting because I think it, mm. Mel, Melbourne of all the East Coast cities, perhaps of all the Australian cities, seems to be the mm. place where there's the most consistent and ongoing overt uh, fascist and patriot organisation activity. But also it's the place where there's probably been the largest, most determined and politically sophisticated from afar, opposition. So mm. I'd be interested to hear about the opposition on the day, but also how this fits into a broader story of, mm. of the anti-fascist movement in Melbourne as well. Mm. Well, let's, well, let's look at Sunday. So in some respects, Sunday's uh, a success. In some, some respects, it wasn't, in my opinion. But, and it's hard to measure how much is the effect of our work and how much is the effect of the fascists' incompetence. Mm. Okay, could you want to start but from just giving when the listeners a, a picture of what actually happened first on Sunday in terms of the counter-rally? 
Yeah, certainly. Um, well, actually, I think uh, it's it's there are different ways to understand it. But what what actually happened? So the Trump event got announced. The True Blue crew and the United Patriots front latched onto it. Uh, our response after some discussion was to call a counter rally, and counter rallies are. They, for us, have been anything from direct attempts to disperse a fascist rally through to marches on the street. Uh, and on Sunday, we had maybe 150 to 200 people respond to our call out for a counter rally. Uh, and maybe, depending on who you ask, the media reported 30 or so people attending the fascist rally. Our spotters reported 50 to 60. Uh, and I tend to think our spotters are more accurate. But the other thing that this provokes, that we know it provokes, and that we use to our political advantage, is a massive response from Victoria Police. Mm. So what actually happened was Victoria Police put 300 police officers into a very small space in the centre of town. We stood at one side, and a very small fascist rally stood at the other. And this is part of the discussion about, well, how effective are we? We know that if we call a counter-rally... The Victoria Police will put 300 officers out and that that will scare the bejesus Mm. out of anyone who's a keyboard warrior coming onto the streets for the first Mm. time. We know that when we announce a counter rally, the Herald Sun and the Age will go into overdrive about the punch-ons about to break out on the street. Call me cynical, but this can be a politically useful tool if our goal is what I've said our goal has been all along. The purpose of these counter rallies is to try and obstruct the ability of far-right groups to reach a wider audience and to organise more broadly. I don't care if there are 30 neo-Nazis in Melbourne. There are more than 30 neo-Nazis. What I care about is when we see 30 neo-Nazis holding rallies that a 1,000 people attend. Mm. And I'm really glad that that hasn't happened in the past six months or so because it, it happened briefly last year and that was concerning majorly. So that's in the original moment of the launch of Reclaim Australia, you have that kind of meeting of a broader anti-Islamic position and a core of neo-Nazis. Yes. Uh, what we saw on the 1st, April uh, April 4th last year, the first Reclaim Australia rally in Melbourne, um, we saw neo-Nazis, people that we had seen operating on the fringes in places like Nationalist Alternative and in other groupings, reaching a much wider audience. So when they called that rally, the, the term Reclaim Australia did not, in the public imagination, mean Nazi. Mm. And it was some, um, it was a big debate, like, do we characterise them as Nazis and fascists and risk people thinking we're ridiculous, mm. or do we spend the work in characterising them as that and try and bust them up from the more, what we call mums and dads or Q society Islamophobes? So and I think in hindsight, <laughs> that was worth doing. <laughs> so that's a really interesting point because I know this is a discussion that I've been having with friends and comrades is that, if you, to my mind, if you designate someone or an event or an organisation as Nazi or even fascist, then that determines that a particular kind of strategy is appropriate. But mm, if you mm. see it as being something else, some other kind of hybrid, authoritarian, yeah. populist, racist kind mm. of mashup, then a different kind of strategy is appropriate. Because Absolutely. what you want to get is you know is is different. You know, like I, whenever there's Absolutely. kind of a, a softer right mobilization, theoretically, you want to win some of those people to mm. redirect their opposition to society to an emancipatory direction. When you're confronting Absolutely. when you're confronting fascist organisation, like clearly neo-Nazis mm. organisations. That's not what you want. And mm. I assume you have to organise in a far different way, tactically, because there's safety involved mm. as well. Mm. Yeah. 
safety um, keeps me awake at night. Uh, I think like there, there is still debate now about whether we should be spending the work in uh, attempting to reach out to what would be the base that these groups are appealing to yeah. uh, or whether we should be calling counter rallies to obstruct their organising. Ultimately, I think there's an absolute demand for both uh, and a lack of capacity or a willingness to do one of those things. Yeah. Um, so the, the fact of the matter is that in the places that we identify there being uh, what I, I think is politically accurate to call fascist or right-wing authoritarian nationalist populist street thugs or whatever organizing, um, those are not areas like there's this geographic problem in Melbourne. Those are areas that are not friendly to the left. There is this troublesome divide between and, and disconnect between the inner city uh, where the fact that matter is that if they call a fascist rally we could put 2,000 people on the streets and certain outer suburbs where quite frankly it's a totally different proposition and the numbers are uh, reversed so we've seen for instance the true blue crew I mentioned before an interesting formation because of the way they're sort of geographically focused and grew out of one or two particular northern suburbs of Melbourne or in the northwest um, and the way in which when they hold rallies there we have problems when they hold rallies in the city. It's it's a different look, uh, a, a different dynamic. Look, I don't really understand the geography of Melbourne um, that well. So, what? How would you describe the northwest of Melbourne? Poor working class and and uh, and, and and more industrial in the sense that uh, the further out from the city you go, the longer you have to commute to have a job in the city. So, if you're people do. Uh, the West is where primarily uh, warehousing industry um, and so on is concentrated. Places like Melton, uh, where the True Blue Crow are based, uh, face higher unemployment, um, higher levels of poverty, uh, but also uh, increasingly numerous migrants are moving out there because you can actually afford to you know, buy a block of land and build a house. So how, how important has uh, anti-mosque protests been in that area? The anti-mosque format, I think, has been uh, critical to, to sustaining the far-right campaign. Um, so what they, they have almost a pro forma as to how they approach uh, a development application for a mosque or a school or whatever, and it doesn't even have to be a real application. Uh, so there's... And, and, and I think, as best... I can determine, I think the Q Society pioneered this approach mm. where what they do is first attempt to build a local a local campaign around uh, objections to planning permission for something. Mm. Uh, and that should be done on a racist basis. And other groups have then identified these as opportunities uh, in which to insert themselves because the Q Society's approach, whilst it, drags out the planning process and thus costs uh, the Muslim community a lot of money going to VCAT and then going to the courts and then going to the Supreme Court eventually to win the right to planning approval. Uh, whilst it does that, um, ultimately the mosque gets built, right? Mm. There's, there's just like, if you, submit, if you submit the planning application properly, in Victoria planning law is such that local councils can't really stop mm. the building of, of a mosque. Uh, so what the UPF identified, I think, in Bendigo and, and elsewhere when they started doing this was that eventually that strategy pursued by middle class Islamophobes reaches its end. 
Yeah. And when it does, there's a whole group of people who've been mobilized for this strategy who are disillusioned yeah. and ready to be told. Very interesting. Here are boys from the UPF and we're ready to fight. I have this completely um, unverifiable hypothesis that part of the appeal of the anti-mosque tactic is because it really taps into this, con this fault line of contemporary class composition where for the vast majority of working class households, however we want to define that term, the main asset that you have is your home. You buy that with an incredibly large mortgage. And mm. therefore, the, the, uh, this anti-MOS protests are able to link people's concern and vulnerabilities about being indebted and the future value of their properties with the broader mm. arguments around race and migration. Like I think in some ways it's quite a brilliant strategy. Um, the other thing that really interests me is that when you're describing this area of Melbourne, you, it, it sounds like it's made up of similar people that are described the very problematic term as the white working class in terms of the mm. explanations for Brexit or for um, yeah. for Trump. And again, the same question jumps up is like, why is this area an area that you describe as being hostile to the left when mm. the characteristics you use to describe it should mm. identify an area... An area of support. The so, yeah, but, yeah. Not, but also not just support, but one where... <laughs> We're, we're a left that, if we're going to use that term, um, that, that I imagine that you want and I want would be deeply mm. embedded. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, there is no, the, the left is not deeply embedded there. The union movement is, uh, you know, at, at record low densities. Uh, the, yeah, the Labor Party uh, is, is rightly viewed with scepticism by, by people in these areas. Totally right. Uh, so... Uh, and the Greens, uh, the Greens are bloody terrible because the Greens pursue a strategy of digging down on the on the inner city. Um, sugar tax. And, sorry, sugar, sugar tax. tax yeah. I think yeah, sugar tax. Uh, the like, say for instance, the obsession with uh, cycling laws. Now we all want you know you and I might sit here and go yeah, cycling infrastructure, whatever. You read that in Melton when you've got a commute an hour into the city, there's no bloody train connection that works properly, the, pu the public transport is rubbish, and you've got these hippies in the inner city telling you that um, everyone who drives a car is the problem. Mm. Uh, the, the sense of the Greens have consciously built uh, a strategy on we want uh, – they see themselves as the smartest, university-educated, inner-city uh, professionals will – will be more likely to vote green. So that's where they pour the resources and that's where the policies are directed and that furthers their alienation um, from you know, places like Melton, uh, uh, places like Narra Warren down in the south. Um, I shudder to think. Like, but, but again, the, the composition of these places is also different uh, in terms of people's background. Like you might problematically call... Melton white working class or narrow Warren, but then there are other places that have greater levels of poverty, but also much more diverse communities no, where, I, the, 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 where fascists have not successfully built a, a stronghold because they would be smashed. Yeah, the, like a fascist group trying to operate in Dandenong would be crushed by, you know, a community 
community that's 30 percent new immigrant <laughs> well, yeah, exactly because when you're describing the the suburbs the the parallels mm. to my mind for a brisbane or, or sydney i'm thinking well surely these are the suburbs in brisbane or sydney where you know if it was brisbane you know a large vietnamese population now there'd be sri lankan mm. and and sudanese migration mm. you know so it's it really blows my understanding of melbourne because i from afar i imagine i just saw melbourne as this city built on second wave migration right that for lack of a better better term the least white city in australia so mm. i'm not sure maybe I'm, maybe wow. I'm wrong but that's what really strikes mm. me like when, when the cronulla riots happened you know you have this kind of pogrom mm. on the beach in some ways i was like of course it did right like uh, of course mm. it did understanding what um how race and geography plays itself mm. out in sydney but i, I mm. don't Maybe I just don't get that kind of dynamic in in Melbourne. People claim that dynamic isn't there in Melbourne, but it still is. You don't, don't have the hills creating, you know, creating that sense of uh, the harbour side and the rest or whatever. Mm. Uh, but you still have um, different composition and different dynamics in different areas. Uh, mm. You know, the this when people talk about uh, you know Melbourne, well integration or whatever. And they, they visualize the inner city. Well, go to certain outer suburbs. It's very different. Yeah. Uh, and in some of these suburbs that have, quite frankly, I think, been screwed over by state government after state government when it comes to investment in infrastructure and other, and, and, and let's face it, jobs, mm-hmm. deindustrialization people, um, then, yeah, I'm not surprised that there is a base uh, for these groups to organize and, you know, spew the message that, the change that's coming as people with a different religion or whatever. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like when, um, you know, on, on one of my blogs, I've written quite a lot about the role infrastructure plays in attempts by certain mm. factions of, of capital to re-stimulate investment. And when the Business Council of Australia were, were like selling their argument, their argument was people will support privatisation if privatization mm. is seen as funding infrastructure just because people's mm. commutes are just so fucking bad right like and there's a yeah. real truth to that right and i always wonder about like are there limits to kind of the was it the east west byway in melbourne and the, the east west link yeah east west link and the west connect protests in sydney which in many ways i really support and i think mm. they're really amazing i was just always wondering mm. about how those kind of geographies and questions of commutes play out um Mm. And it's also really interesting too, I just spent some time hanging out with some comrades involved in the Free University of Western Sydney. And so mm. these are anti-capitalists and communists in Western Sydney, very much from non-white and migrant backgrounds who, in this sense, are trying to inhabit like the, the regional class and racial makeup of Sydney in the co- completely different way from the story you're telling me here. You know, that these are the suburbs that are the poorer suburbs, but these are also the more multicultural suburbs and they're attempting to launch a really interesting project. Um, Kieran, I'm particularly interested because it seems that you're quite involved in this anti-fascist, anti-fa work, but you're also a... um, self-declared anarchist that's the term isn't it's always self-declared anarchist (laughs) and you know you you write uh you run a a blog that i would say is probably um one of the more prominent anarchist blogs in australia so i'm kind of interested how you see this kind of anti-fascist activity fitting in with a broader attempt a broader part of an anarchist politics and I, I kind of also would like to hear your thoughts if you've got an opinion on any of the debates that have emerged post-Trump 
um, about race and class and whiteness. You know, there's this kind of argument out there at the moment that Trump proves that there's this body called the white working class. They're mm. structurally reactionary. Race mm. trumps class. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm interested if, if, if you think there's any kind of weight to this and how this gels with an anarchist attempt to create an emancipated society. So not, not too much then. <laughs> not, not too much. Just, just a couple of really simple questions yeah. there. Um, look, I've always seen the anti-fascist campaign as essentially defensive. Uh, we want to organise, um, you know, to disrupt and oppose these far-right groups when they're successfully or when they appear to be uh, likely to speak to a wider organ uh, audience and organise on a wider basis. Um, so, you know, our interest in groups like Reclaim Australia or the UPF or even the TBC uh, arises when it appears that they are actually have some prospect of a cohering and b breaking out of the far right ghetto uh, but i don't think it's a like i don't think that anti-fascism is a complete response to um to these far right groups i think it's it's actually a very limited and only one part of the response that we need um because the terrain in which these groups are operating is uh i'd say that uh, the de uh, the decline of well I, I wouldn't want to call it the left as such or uh, the other forces that would otherwise have taken up this political space uh their you know union density in australia is what down below 20 percent in the private sector it's like 12 13 percent that's a generous rating yeah i know do you consider members of the sda members of a union or members, yeah, of, totally. members of a union um i'm not sure that i do um, and in a lot of the places where these groups are operating, and I don't want to sound like a cliche, but there are very real reasons why people might be pissed off because, um, you know, in the outer suburbs, uh, neglect for investment or lack of infrastructure or lack of employment or lack of whatever. Um, and anti-fascism doesn't pose uh, an answer to this. There needs to be, you know, there needs to be built the kind of combative working class organisations uh, that can actually fight uh, the state and capital in order to um, extract what people need. Uh, and these things don't exist. And what does exist and what is, I don't know, what is sort of one manifestation of maybe what um, what the uh, tad and left, frank, uh, left flank uh, people are calling anti-politics, but one manifestation of this sort of, decline of the hold of the established political class mm. um, on on the political mainstream is is an opening for the right yeah um, and these right-wing organizations at times you know they seem so um, you look at them and you think surely there's no possibility of these groups cohering and then you see places uh, like, for instance, re uh, last year in Bendigo, where the United Patriots Front organised rallies of at least at one occasion a thousand people in a, in a town wow. of a hundred thousand. Now we lied about that publicly, quite frankly. Um, we downplay the numbers always. The left uh, and protest numbers and social phenomena has always been sort of one of the misrepresentation to political end. Um, but there was a moment there where, on the basis of sort of this surface level anti-muslim stuff um a far-right fringe group organized by neo-nazis was addressing a thousand people on the streets of a regional center in victoria 
Um, that's correct. That's full on, right? This isn't an isolated incident. You know, mm. the the True Blue crew slash uh, their PDLA predecessors in Melton, um, despite opposition uh, and despite the barriers in in you know in between them and successfully organising, it's like Melton, a group like the True Blue crew or their PDLA sort of ancestor group, were you know successfully mobilising several hundred people to talk about the fact that they have Muslims and and uh, and they don't want uh, an Islamic school or a mosque or whatever the issue is this week. But then you look at sort of the composition of these rallies and where are these people coming from? Um, and then you also speak to some of the members of these groups and you ask them why they're involved. And I think this sort of links back to the Trump thing. Um, there are people who have every reason to be angry and discontented with um, uh, for want of a better word, the political establishment. Mm. Um, and there are groups who are organizing and trying on a racist basis in these communities. There's, uh, there's, yeah. some, there's something I, I find really interesting there because the, mm. I think what I'm hearing you say that in some ways that the, the people that are being organized by this new far-right politics are mm. a kind of composition or an audience that you think we actually need to compete for and put forward an alternative form of organizing Absolutely. an alternative form of politics. I see Absolutely. that, I see and, that, because uh, I, I, yeah, yeah, there's almost an argument, and I, I think um, an example of this was recently in the Socialist Alternative publication, Red Flag by Ben Hillier, and he made a very sophisticated <sighs> version of an argument that says fascism is by definition middle class, therefore mm. there is no need to compete for this audience Rather, mm. what we need to do is just smash them, mm. you know. Mm. And I, I, th I find that always like a very. I think it's problematic. It's like finding a mm. political form and then determining a classic composition from that, mm. and exempting yourself from the need to the fact that you've actually got to politically compete in these areas. You've got to fill that space. So I think it, I find it very interesting that you're making a yeah. radically different argument. Yeah. Look, I and I, I work in the same sort of coalition that Ben does. Uh, in the campaign against racism and fascism. Uh, but I definitely take a different position. I think there's both a case in which something has to be smashed and a case in which there's an audience that has to be competed for or a political vacuum that has to be filled. Mm. Uh, because what I see happening is I see uh, a committed far-right political formations, very small ones, who do appear to uh, consciously think about politics um, and how they can build their organisations, who identify locations and particular audiences and issues, mm. uh, then seek to break out of their position of political isolation by speaking to this audience on some basis or another mm. that will through. And they experiment with all sorts of different messages, uh, and different issues and different looks in order to try and speak to that audience. And, and they have some relationship to One Nation as well, don't they? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, they they all they're all very gratified by the fact that Pauline Hanson has been successful, mm -hmm. and I think that a great deal of them have joined One Nation. And I also think that the success of Pauline Hanson at the recent elections has somewhat taken a little bit of the steam out of out of the sails of some of these far-right groups. Mm. 
can't see, like I think the Reclaim Australia crowd would wholeheartedly have gone into One, into Nation, One Nation and I don't see them coming out again for the UPF or TBC or whatever. Um, and, and my impression, and I don't really, this is more a hypothesis than something I feel mm. really back up, that this time round, the establishment are being far softer on One Nation than absolute. they were in 96. Absolutely. So in Queensland, and I've just got to preface this by saying I hate the kind of like attempt to explain One Nation as some kind of like simply Queensland phenomena based on some kind of lazy reading of Queensland. Mm. But in Queensland, the previous Premier, um, Campbell Newman, has already floated the idea that a LNP, One Nation Coalition, could be mm. a possible government in Queensland. And I think if you see today, you know, Dick Smith coming out saying that he supports One Nation but doesn't really support the stuff on Muslim immigration mm, and the mm. way that that's been given a really sympathetic airing, um, I think is very, very different from 96. I think Pauline Hanson's very different now to 1996. I think the phenomenon is different. I think the political situation is different. Mm. And I think people trying to read the situation based on what happened last time equals what we should do this time, have missed the changes that have taken place. It's very different for Pauline Hanson to whip up xenophobia around quote-unquote Asians mm. in the face of Australia's uh, geographic and economic position in relation to China, Indonesia mm. and the rest of Southeast Asia, whereas Muslims, mm. what's the Muslim world to Australian capitalism? <laughs> It, the, the Muslim world to Australian capitalism is very different um, to what, inverted commas, you know, Asians or the Chinese mm -hmm. are to Australian capitalism. We also exist in a situation where the Australian state has spent the better part of 15, 16 years bashing up on, you know, Muslims, totally. terrorists, refugees, boat people. Hey, it's all one and the same. Uh, and I think and if you have a look at what, what were the mainstream political parties' response to the mm. Trump phenomena, well, on one hand, you have Shorten coming out, doubling down on the opposition to 457 visas, going, mm. going back, I think, signalling that old-style, genuine Labour Party politics of white Australia white and arbitration, right? Mm. And you have Peter Dutton critiquing previous liberal multiculturalism with an attack on Lebanese immigration. You know, yeah. and they're the mainstream parties. I read an article by Ghassan Haj the other day on anti-racism. And, you know, one of the points he makes is that, you know, racialized nationalism is mm. an inherent part of, I don't like the term neoliberalism, but neoliberal capitalism to hold together social cohesion as the kind of deindustrialization changes to class composition have undermined a more kind of natural, for a lack, lack of a better term, social cohesion. So, you know, like, of course, then Hanson's easy, you know, like George Christensen or Corey Bernardi, you know, these these people in the coalition are not radically different from the Hanson position, right? Bernardi and Christensen are very interesting because they've looked um, at Trump and they see for themselves uh, a wedge to expand their own influence totally. over the party. And they're quite obviously and blatantly trying to become these sort of phony Australian Trumps in yeah. order to expand their influence. Now, in, in terms of like Ben Hillier and smashy, smashy or accommodate or uh, fill the vacuum, um, it's interesting because I think there's a difference between um, the the argument that got put forward by some, uh, some commentators, the likes of Margot Kingston, that uh, Hanson 
uh, now represents a more legitimate political force and thus we have to engage with her. I think that's totally nonsense. I think that the likes of Hanson, uh, the likes of these far-right formations, the likes of Bernardi and Christensen have to be absolutely rejected, uh, smashed and delegitimized. Um, I think that when we uh, reach out, when, when, we, when we say that there's a need for something capable of filling that political vacuum, what fills that vacuum should not be an accommodation to mm. racial nationalism or anything like that. It has to be, you know, a serious internationalist, anti-racist um, politics that that fight for for what people need to live, or what we people, what we think people need, yeah. uh, in order to live. And and if we've hit that right, we should be able to cut through um, one nation, Hansonism, Trumpism, whatever. Yeah. And I think I think in the other kind of positives are there's you know from from a distance it seems that there's kind of a, a resurgence of um, a militant indigenous struggle in Australia that is like looking to a global hi- horizon for its inspiration, and also there's a generation of people who were kids when Hanson came around last time that are now in their twenties. And are attempting, I think, different political projects. So, uh, like a friend of mine, not very close, but a friend of mine uh, has uh, started this new group called Democracy in Colour that I'm not quite sure what the political project is, but it seems to be, you know, pulling together uh, young people of colour to do an overt anti-racist political Mm. practice. I think that's really exciting and really inspiring. All right, Kieran. Well, thanks for your time in these two interviews that we're we're cobbling together. Um, is there anything that we've missed or that you'd like to talk about or think's important to this discussion? I had an impression before we started chatting that the alt right was really a phenomenon in Australia, and now I'm thinking that it's probably not the case. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. <laughs> uh, like when Reclaim Australia was announced as a project, um, I didn't think that anything had changed. Um, the same actors from the same groups had previously tried to break out on the back of Islamophobia in Melbourne in 2011. Uh, They'd organised through Facebook, they'd organised online, they had hundreds of people who were supposedly interested, they called rallies, and it amounted to nothing. And they were just fizzers, Uh, right? And they were absolute fizzers. And then in 2015, the same actors and the same groups rebadge, rebrand, call themselves Reclaim Australia, call themselves the Great Aussie Patriot, call themselves whatever, announce some rallies. And I went down thinking that April 4 last year was going to be the same 20 or 30 neo-Nazis who get chased off the street and that would be that. And then approximately a thousand people showed up. How much, uh, how, what do you think of that? Like one, no, and this is just off the top of my head. It mm. seems that um, the ability of Sherman... Burgess to mm. transform himself into a YouTube celebrity mm. in the lead up to this and the use of YouTube mm. might be a difference. Burgess's Great Aussie Patriot Project yeah. and the way that he made use of those really inane and really, like, in, from our point of view, horrible to watch, you know, two, three-minute videos on Facebook. Yeah. Um, but the technology really worked for him. Totally. Because... Uh, it was shared. The share function existed on Facebook in a way that it didn't in 2011. Uh, it was watched. Uh, you know, the the UPF uh, proudly boasts that their page reach for their videos broke three million. Yeah, that's a level of audience that these groups didn't have access to in the past. Um, but I also think 
uh, that one thing that was different in 2015 to 2011 was the Abbott government was death cult, was ISIS on the news, mm. uh, was, for a lot of them, it seems, the Martin Place siege. You know, I, I saw the Martin Place siege and thought, oh, good, Australia hasn't had a massive Islamophobic reaction to this because surely we can all see that man, uh, man Mor- Monos or whatever the heck his name was is, a, you know, an, a somewhat eccentric individual who's decided to, you know, make a bid for fame and glory with a shotgun rather mm. than the representative of some international Muslimic conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, but it seems when you speak to the individuals who were involved in uh, Reclaim Australia and these other groups, that actually for them this was this was the head choppings coming home to Australia. Yeah. And the media that they were consuming online, you know, from the likes of Sherman Burgess, you know, fed into that worldview, motivated them and brought them out on the streets. It's, uh, uh, that, that's, it's, that's so, like, both interesting and, and despairing mm. on one level. It's almost like the horrific situation that's been created post the invasion of Iraq mm. creates this kind of void or maelstrom that feeds the very tendencies that are so destructive, right? Like, that. that's... The, the other thing that it makes me think about as well is, is that, you know, Sherman's personal internet celebrity through YouTube is that the the fascists are just always good at a form of communication that, mm. that we in the left don't use. You know, like, I, I write overly long articles. Yeah. You know, but, and, and it's so like, do I, don't, I. I don't know if there's a singly good, good anti-capitalist YouTube station from Australia, right? That... You know, our, no, our, 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 our preferred form of communication is the written word, then mm. the meeting, then there's maybe, there's maybe or maybe a couple of podcasts that exist, mm. but actually what's the medium of the moment? It's YouTube, right? Mm. You know, like, and we can see... Well, the, Burgess we, wasn't so much using YouTube as Facebook videos. Oh, really? Uh, okay, so, so much. I and think. so the Facebook page and the videos in combination were one of the things that... And it's not so much, I think, that Burgess was... Like, Burgess was using it. We're not using it. None of Burgess's videos were very good. Yeah. Um, but they spoke to a layer of people that were out there that he was able to reach. Yeah. Um, and when we put propaganda out and we try and speak to a layer of people, uh, what do we do? We publish a newspaper, another journal, uh, <laughs> perhaps yeah. a blog. Um, but, uh, yeah. The only sort of uh, new media project that I'm aware of uh, was Green Left TV, and I can't see that, you know, suddenly breaking no. through Facebook fandom. Yeah. Obviously, know. you know, like for me personally, I look overseas and see examples like Navarra as being mm-hmm. very successful. But it, there's certainly some, there's something there, right, about what is our forward-facing. You know, when mm. you talk about filling, filling the, the, the vacuum, filling the void, what does that actually concretely look like? Mm. People do, you know throughout Australia, exist in a cyber-mediated world. Part of filling the vacuum is putting arguments in that space, right? You know, that... Yeah. Um, <coughs> I know you're not a Leninist, but I think, you know, if you read what is to be done, right, and what can you get out of that, you think, well, if Lenin was here today, you know, you wouldn't do a newspaper, would you? You'd have a really good YouTube TV station. You'd have five people, ten people working mm. really seriously to put out that content, and that would be more effective than having a membership organization that stands in inner city street corners attempting to sell newspapers. Well, I'm preaching to the converted here. Yeah, you are preaching to the converted. And I also don't think that the people who stand on street corners selling newspapers are actually trying to speak to a wider audience. Ah, I think what they're trying to do is engage 
in basically join conversations with potential recruits. Yeah. Um, they're not trying to do, like, I don't think the Green Left or Red Flag uh, or any of the others, which are, now I don't want to, like, they're impressive projects in their own right, but none of them speak to a mass audience. Mm. And in the format that they're in, none of them are going to speak to a yeah. mass audience. Um, I'm yet to put out anything that does. Yeah, same. I don't have the answer to that myself. Yeah. Um, but I think that all of us are going to be looking at, well, what is actually going to cut through mm. to what, well, what do we identify our potential audience is? Do we, do we still have this mythos of what the working class is in our head or do we have an understanding of what it actually is? What is our audience within that and how are we going to cut through to it? And I, I, I even wonder if part of framing it like this is a problem, like mm. does genuinely emancipatory politics kind of frame itself in a way that is like we are here mm. as self-declared revolutionaries and there is an outside there and we have to mm. yell our voice out or is it only really possible in kind of grounded concrete situations and material struggles that that communication can happen you know i, I read i don't really know what i think about it but i read this english project or well, people based in england i don't know where they're from angry workers world and they mm. certainly you know are producing a newspaper that circulates the experience of struggles, but they've all moved into a geography and an industry and attempt mm. to actually communicate in the basis of that struggle. Or if I look in Brisbane, one of the most inspiring things is the um, right to, to the city movement, mm. which has a resonance not because of like a generic politics, um, mm. but rather the way of framing a radical critique in a very approachable way around a direct set of material circumstances. Um, because I guess part of like what you'd say about the far right is it's not that they have a counter project, but they functionally have a bullshit project, right? Like it, they might be able to mobilize people and cause a lot of damage, but they can't really solve the contradictions of capitalist life. No, of course not. So like that allows them to engage in a kind of recruit cycle confrontation that mm. for those of us that are, I think, more more orientated to an emancipatory project, maybe that's not our lens, right? Maybe that's not our jive, for a lack of a better term. All right. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a place to answer, no. <laughs> Sorry, that was just a, off the it's, I think it's interesting, though, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And, and how this like, works. And yeah. Well, there's a sense to which, like, um, by, by having sort of, but, well... The left are effectively, you know, in, in, in a way, divorced from um, the mass of the society in which we're in. Yeah. Um, you know, we've the project of uh, of building a left organization or of trying to advance left politics or whatever um, does seem to isolate us from, or or that we or we or we develop strategies for doing it that involve us isolating ourselves mm. uh, from the communities that we're in. We all move to the same few inner suburbs. Uh, we cut ourselves off from the people who, you know, aren't committed to this particular, you know, political ideas or, yeah. um, you know, and, and we, we do. We do tend to build insular little spaces and organisations and campaigns and so on that, allow us to go through these routines i think i think as well you know when you say you make this point that you know that we are kind of broken off from the mass of society or alienated from the mass of society i actually think that's also the condition of the mass of society mm. that there's you know it's it's not like that there's kind of like you know the left standing over there or anti capitalist standing yeah. over there and this kind of healthy proletarian sociality that's just no. over there if only we turned around 
part. Yeah. Like, I, I think there is certainly a whole mess of social relationships where people try to build community and solidarity all the time. I don't think we just live in this kind of consumerist world. But there has been a really disorientating effect of the transformations of capitalism in the last 30 years. And I always wonder if, like, um, again, not a really scientific theory, but when I was young, no one flew the Australian flag, right? Like, yes. Um, if if you flew any flag, it might be the boxing kangaroo flag, which I think mm. even after the revolution we should keep. Um, <laughs> but and I don't think it was just the influence of the Howard government attempting to hype up nationalist ideology. I think also the transformations that took place in the time were the breaking part of what were organic geographically based links and the compensation mm. that people went to was hyper-symbolism. Mm. Um, and I think, that, I think that symbolism, you know, like I, I, like everyone else, you know, can joke about the Southern Cross being, being the Ostica, but I think that symbolism is actually more complicated than the left often think. You know, when yeah. people get a Southern Cross tattooed on them, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're about to join UPF, right? <laughs> no, look, you know, but for its nationalist connotations, you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, there's... Uh, I spent uh, I spent was it Sunday at um, an event in Footscray, uh, like I was bagging out a socialist alternative before. I feel I should bag out Melbourne's anarchists whilst I'm at it. Um, and this event was part of a three day thing that's meant to uh, by by this grouping of anarchists is meant to be their big breakout, speak to a wider audience. Mm. Um, reach out to the community and build links in Footscray. You know, Footscray, good working class community where they've all relocated because you can get cheap squats. Um, and this fucking event, oh my God. World's loudest punk music, whole bunch of cross punks sitting around. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that was it. Um, but yeah, again, the I, same. I'm not, I'm not as, so, like being a, a previously a subcultural more subcultural yeah. person. I'm not as anti-subcultural because I think yeah, I think everyone's subcultural I'm now, anti -subculture. right? <laughs> At the same time, like this was, you know, these are the the, the events that the anarchist milieu uh, create to, you know, to break out of their existing spaces or to reach wider audiences or anything like this. So, um, ah, shit. And I think, like, <laughs> I think that's also not just like because I think everyone's subcultural, right? Like, I, where I live in the west of, of Brisbane, certainly not a cool area. And I go to mm. my local shops and everyone's got nose piercings and tattoos mm. and is weird, right? Yeah. Like, well, not, not everyone, but everyone is weird um, and we're everyone's subcultural. But I think it's part of the problem of, like, a political project that tries to relate to people as we're anarchists and you're others or we're yeah. communists and you're others rather mm. than starting from the point that we have a shared material condition and a shared mm. antagonism. And, you know, if that makes sense, like... Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's a very difficult thing to kind of... It's, it's going to be a very difficult kind of politics. All right, Kieran. Well, thank you very much for your time. Oh, um, we sorry. can talk about this later, but I really want to include in the sections that you say don't include those in. So for the listeners <laughs> right now, you're either going to get a version that has those bits or mysteriously does not, and you'll have to contact Kieran and, um, and go from there. But just to fi fi finalise, if someone is in Melbourne and they're interested in getting involved in anti-fa, anti-fascist activity, where should they go? There are a couple of different places if you're interested. Uh, so there's a Facebook page for the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, worth sending a message to. Uh, there's another Facebook page called Melbourne Anti-Fascist Info, again, worth sending a message to. Um, or get in touch with any of the groups involved in these campaigns. 
which range from uh, our Trotskyist opponents slash allies uh, all the way through to uh, different little anarchist groups, uh, uh, including my own. And that's that's anarchist inf- affinity. Yes, it not, is. Not anarchist infinity. Not anarchist infinity, <laughs> anarchist uh, affinity. Excellent. Uh, Although, of course, we are uh, contemplating uh, a name change so that will suddenly allow us to uh, uh, not be pigeonholed. As and rally the, rally the masses to your side. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we're suddenly going to, uh, we're suddenly going to cut through the, the left ghetto and reach, you know, the, the, the mass of society. It's all about the name. All right, Kieran, well, it's thank all... you very much for your time. Um, I hope you have thank a lovely you. night. You too. Bye. Um... There is supposedly a wave of conservatism sweeping the country. Just a short little thing here. There's supposedly a wave of conservatism sweeping the country, and um, as these groups move farther and farther to the right, they find fewer and fewer songs that can be sung by people or groups as a whole. And when they finally arrive, I'd like to. Uh, I wrote the song for them so they can sing when they get together. I like Hitler, jolly, jolly Hitler. I like Hitler and Mussolini too. I like Franco in Spain and I'll have to maintain that Batista was really quite all right. Trujillo was my man and Rick Bearwood understands what this country really needs is apartheid. Loyally we birch along, birch along, birch along, loyally we birch along, back to the good old days. God save the king. Where's the one I did at the concert?